We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Mayor Emanuel is making changes at the top of Chicago's Police Accountability Agency. Governor Rauner is navigating some tricky political waters. And government agencies at all levels are spending your money and affecting your life. But this week's guest and his team are keeping watch on all of it. We're talking about the BGA. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this weekend is Andy Shaw, president and CEO of the Better Government Association. The BGA is, as its name suggests, a group that is dedicated to government reform, and its history dates back to 1923. It was founded to fight corruption. It's known for its investigations, and it's had some lean years in the past, but since Andy Shaw took over in 2009, the organization has had a revitalization. Andy almost needs no introduction. He is heard regularly here on WBBM News Radio during our Watchdog Wednesday and Follow Up Friday segments. And he had a career as one of the best broadcast journalists in Chicago. He retired as the political reporter for ABC7 after, I was going to say, more than a quarter century. But that sounds so long, doesn't well, it, it? It actually was. I'm just glad you said I didn't start with the BGA in 1923. Yes, I'm no. old, but not quite that old. You know, that was the Capone era, and I only know him by reputation, thankfully. <laughs> thankfully, although... You'd still be going even if you had started then. Uh, um, Andy had been at uh, NBC5 before that. He's also a veteran of the City News Bureau and the Chicago Sun-Times. Andy Shaw, welcome back. Always a pleasure, Craig. Um, well, let's start out with that police stuff because uh, Mayor Emanuel named retired Judge Patricia Banks to be the interim administrator of the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, and he's outlined the process for seeking a permanent chief for COPA, replacing Sharon Fairley. Uh, it would seem, at least to, I think, a lot of people watching this, that the success of police reform or its failure um, will have a lot to do with how strongly Mayor Emanuel runs for re-election. What's your feeling about the stakes here? You took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, police reform will be one of the big issues in the next mayoral race. The city's taken some steps forward. There have been some steps backwards. COPA, not to be confused with Copacabana, um, is the new acronym for police oversight. IPRA, its predecessor, uh, had a lackluster track record. Police were not generally held accountable. They skated most of the time. That contributed to the general feeling that it's a department out of control, no accountability, oversight, or transparency. And so this new agency, COPA, with more money and more power and more staffing, was supposed to do a lot to keep track of wayward police officers. Lo and behold, they lose their top two people right at the start. Uh, hardly an auspicious beginning, but the mayor has a well-respected former judge sitting there temporarily. They're looking for a new head, and let's see how they handle the cases. I will say that the climate in Chicago for oversight is very different in some places. You know, a former BGA board member and a colleague of both of ours, Lori Lightfoot, uh, she heads the police board, 
and they have really doubled down on uh, punishing misconduct in ways that the predecessor board hadn't. And let's hope COPA does the same thing. Look, we don't want to scapegoat or railroad police officers. We don't want to throw them under the bus. They're doing critically important work at a very dangerous time, all of us know. But we also know, sadly, that this has been a department that for decades has not been run well. Uh, it, has, it has been racist. It's been uh, uh, homophobic and ethnically challenged. And it has not policed itself very well. There's been way too much excessive force and brutality tolerated. Neighborhoods have been disrespected. Uh, the fabric uh, relationship between the police department and the community has been torn. And it's the mayor's job to repair that if he hopes to be reelected. Let's hope COPA can do its job. It has the tools, but it doesn't have full-time leadership now. And that's a real challenge. And it also doesn't quite have the structure that it was meant to have. Um, I- I think, uh, in, you know, not all the parts have been in, been put in place. Uh, regular civilians are not part of the civilian office of police accountability. Uh, they're supposed to be uh, an advisory board or, in fact, an oversight board. And there hasn't been agreement on that. Now, I, I, is that troubling you? Oh, that terribly. That's taking so long to sure. get into place? The, these these. The pieces of this reform, at least at this level, were announced a year ago, and we don't have this civilian, you know, community-based panel. I don't know how much of the fault of that uh, rests at City Hall in the mayor's office. I think part of the problem is that the community organizers of this particular panel haven't gotten their acts together yet and agreed on how they're going to operate. And I think that the the mayor and City Hall have kind of let them do their thing, and they haven't done it very well so far, so they don't exist and it's really up to the community organizers of this panel uh, to take it seriously and come up with a plan to give to the mayor, and then it has to be implemented by him and the council. You're absolutely right. Um, reform of this department is multi-layered, and we've taken a couple of steps forward, but as we learned this past week, there have been some big, big steps backward, the loss of people at COPA among them, and new reporting on uh, a lack of accountability when it comes to police overtime, terribly troubling. Yeah, let's talk about that, because that was uh, the big headline, in fact, a headline big enough to bring uh, Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson back from the uh, recovery room where he's uh, getting over uh, transplant surgery, but... Uh, is it is it first off is it a surprise that there were that many systematic abuses of overtime where police are getting more overtime than they uh, they should get or or really did earn well as i've said about many things that come out of the blue uh, surprising but not shocking i thought there had been more internal reform uh, under johnson over the past year this apparently is not one of them, and this is deeply troubling. Not only from a taxpayer standpoint, we're spending close to $300 million a year on overtime, which is a couple times more than we spent a few years ago. That's Part of that is explained by a shortage of police officers. So some of the overtime is simply to man the beats as necessary. You can live with that. But so much of it appears to be almost Chicago-style corruption, which is a failure to at, to to re, a failure to to demonstrate and prove the need for overtime. You have you have paper record keeping rather than computerized record keeping. You have very little oversight. In effect, officers are simply allowed to claim overtime uh, uh, work and not have to back up the fact that they actually did it. The police contract 
I understand, creates an opportunity to work 15 minutes of overtime and collect three hours of overtime pay because you have travel involved. And so from a a systemic problem to a failure of oversight and accountability to the actual abuse by regular officers, I think we have a terrible problem that that epitomizes much of what's wrong at CPD. We police the streets, but, but they don't police themselves. And we're not even policing the streets very well. Do you know that the homicide clearance rate in Chicago is only 5%? That means 95% of the killers in Chicago get away with murder. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons is we have such an antiquated system of dealing with crime. Give you a great example. In New York, when they find a gun used in the commission of a crime, they do fingerprint analysis and DNA analysis immediately on those guns. DNA analysis on a gun in Chicago can take up to two years. How are you going to clear the case if it takes two years? In addition, New York does a terrific job of monitoring Facebook and Twitter and other social media where a lot of the taunting and the gang-related antagonism takes place that results in people showing up at a street corner armed, and I think that explains a lot of the homicides in Chicago. The game is being played on social media now, which means you can get crowds, places much more quickly to do damage to one another. We don't monitor social media anywhere near as well. They also have a way of checking out. Uh, they use New York uses social media monitoring to get to the hot spots before the crimes take place, so that when folks show up there, they see they see a, a squad car and a couple coppers, and maybe they change their minds and go back home. It seems to me, from everything I've read and studied, that we not only have a failure of accountability and transparency, but our policing methodology is way behind other cities. And so um, Eddie Johnson coming out of sick bay for one day is hardly going to cure a problem. The good news is we are on the road to a consent decree thanks to an intervention by Lisa Madigan. And I think sooner or later there's going to be court oversight that's going to mandate changes. It's going to cost money. It's going to take time. But maybe sometime in our life time, we'll have a fully functional CPD. How much weight do you believe uh, Attorney General Madigan's uh, participation in this uh, and and the way she nudged the city into uh, federal court oversight? uh, How much do you think she will chart the path to reform? Well, I don't think it's her. It's not her path to chart. Uh, It was her it was her lawsuit to join. She has standing there. And I think that theoretically her office could have some control. But I think at the end of the day, uh, if you get a court, if you get a court, you get a monitor. Uh, She's leaving in a year. She's announced that. So is it appropriate? Perhaps someone in her office becomes the monitor. I would say we have good monitoring in her office. We could have good monitoring outside. You know, we had two. Aren't they drawing up? I mean, Aren't the negotiations for what that agreement is being drawn up between the city and the attorney general's well, office? It, but it will be enforced by a federal judge with uh, a lot of power to make sure it happens and a lot of power to order expenditures in the in the service of reform. Yes, look, I think the attorney general's office is staffed with enough people to do a good job. They don't, you know, they're not members of the Chicago administration, so they're technically outside of that. I think that could be a very good formula um, if everybody takes it seriously and is committed to reform. We've had various initiatives over the years. We, you've covered them. I covered them. It goes back to, to the time that I was a teenager growing up. We were doing police reform in Chicago. Nothing has really stuck. And, and the real question this time is, 
the old question that Patty Baller asked that we use tongue-in-cheek, is Chicago ready for reform? Is CPD ready for reform? You have to change a whole culture if you're going to get there. And do you think, or maybe I should ask it this way, what will it take for the public, specifically the African-American and Latino communities in Chicago, to trust that reform is in fact taking place. Well, that will be the that will be probably the most significant aspect of the 2019 mayor's race. And of course, if we do the things we've been doing here at WBBM, you and me and Chris Crydell will cover those election nights. I think policing and community trust will be among the biggest issues in the race. You know, ever since the Laquan McDonald tape was released. Uh, the mayor has been uh, distrusted almost across the board in many communities, uh, mainly African-American, some Latino, and even among a lot of uh, Caucasians who just think that he dropped the ball and failed. A lot of so-called lakefront liberals, north and south. Uh, that's a tough electoral uh, opposition to win against. At the moment, we don't know who's going to run against him. But I think that the mayor understands the stakes here. He didn't want federal oversight. But I think now he's accepted it, and he's accepted Lisa Madigan as a, as a partner, as he puts it. But I think they're going to have to walk the walk pretty aggressively in the next year. Otherwise, he's going to have the same problems. People are going to look and say it's all been a smokescreen. Uh, nothing's really changed. And this overtime report, if that doesn't get cleaned up in the next year, I think he's going to continue to be in big trouble. Well, and it looks like the police department is at least taking some big steps. Anytime uh, the... Uh, Inspector General holds a news conference about a department and the department head is standing next to him, you pretty much figure that the administration has agreed to do just about whatever it is that the IG said that they should do. And they are going to go to more electronic uh, and, you know, an automatic time card. Let's be optimistic. Uh, I'm a half, I'm a cup half full guy, but, but if, if past is prologue, don't get overconfident. As I say, uh, I've been watching this on and off for more than four decades. I've seen a hundred promises of police reform, and I'm not sure how many of them have actually become reality. Um, you can you can guess on that one too. Yeah. Sadly, not many. Almost none. Uh, you are listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is Andy Shaw, the president and CEO of the Better Government Association. Uh, let's move to uh, some pressures facing another of the state's political leaders, technically the biggest leader in the state, technically, uh, Governor Bruce Rauner. It seems that his government is being pushed and pulled from both sides on on any number of issues. Right. Um, I think Bruce Rauner has learned something that didn't necessarily come across his desk in private equity, where he could basically control the buying and selling of companies and in the process make uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, certainly a skill he does uh, have uh, more than most. Uh, in, in this arena, in the public sector arena, you have to balance personal feelings, ideology, and politics. And you have to do that under very tricky circumstances. This SB 40, the abortion bill, was probably the most complicated one so far because the governor claims to have always been pro-choice, as his wife is, and yet he promised a group of Republicans during the budget negotiations that he would veto an abortion rights bill, and he presumably did that to hold them in line when they were threatening to revolt on the budget and go with the Democrats. So he promises them a vote that's very important to them, keeps them in line on the budget, 
uh, although he's overridden anyway. He keeps some votes off, but then he goes the opposite way and he signs the abortion bill. Not only signs it, I think people, and I was among them, thought we'd see an amendatory veto where he'd he'd approve protecting abortion rights, but he wouldn't approve public funding, an expansion of public funding uh, for abortions for Medicaid recipients and state employees. But he signed the whole bill, I think because he was afraid that if he vetoed it, it wouldn't be overridden and he'd lose completely. And I think the other thing that he said that I found commendable, although not acceptable to his Republican base, is that he didn't think it was fair for poor women who depend on Medicaid uh, not to have access to abortions if they choose to, simply on the basis of their economic situation, when more affluent women will, would. And so I think he felt that the funding piece was an equity question. That sounds more like a liberal Democratic point of view, at least on this issue. Is he in hot water? Certainly among conservative Republicans. I just think there's one question now. Well, there's the big question, can he win re-election? But I think the question today, as we look at this, is he going to face a tough primary opponent? There hadn't been much going on up to now, but there's a lot of ramp- there's a lot of rumbling in conservative Republican circles that A, uh, conservatives, pro-life Republicans aren't going to support him anymore, won't vote for him, but more importantly, could field a candidate against him, forcing him to spend a lot of his money in a primary, as the Democrats are doing, not have clear sailing, and perhaps be at risk. Uh, and I think one of the other issues that uh, conservatives have been criticizing the governor for is immigration, because he also signed the Trust Act, which in a way limits the cooperation that uh, local authorities can have with uh, federal immigration authorities. Uh, you, you can't just really hold someone uh, just on the basis of their uh, immigration status unless there's a warrant. And uh, so I think that's the other area where he's losing some of his base support. But, I mean, his mission now is just to get through, get through the primary. He still has 50, I mean, he still has 52 million or $50 million of his own money uh, sunk into his campaign. So he's got enough money to spend. But, and governing is a learning curve. And if you think about Bruce Rauner, he started out, um, as a, as a bomb-throwing conservative Republican reformer who was going to shake up Springfield and change business as usual and bring Madigan and Cullerton to their knees and bust the unions and do job-creating, you know, clean up workers' comp and tort reform. He was going to do all these things to make Illinois strong again. And instead of doing it quietly through through compromise and uh, negotiation, he was throwing bombs at the Speaker and the House president, uh, Senate president from day one. He alienated them from day one. And I think he learned that his rigid ideology and his bombast were getting nothing done. We had no budget for two years. His poll ratings were so low that he could never be reelected if they didn't improve. And I think he had an epiphany of sorts. Uh, he, I think he realized that if he had any hope of a second term, uh, in, in which he could continue to try to do some of the things he wants to change, he would have to move to the center. And so all, he, had, he, he signed a bill that essentially protects gays and lesbians from a certain kind of persecution. He signed the Trust Act bill. He signed automatic voter registration, which in some people's eyes helps Democrats more than Republicans. And now HB 40, he signed the school funding bill, having said for weeks that he wouldn't because it was a bailout for CPS. There's been a lot of flip-flopping, 
um, in the interest of, A, moving to the center, but also, I think, in the interest of learning how to govern. I think the only thing I would say we ought to do as an electorate and as a citizenry is understand that you don't have all the answers on day one. Governing the seventh largest state in the country is a challenging, tough job, especially when you take over under such economic and and, uh, ethical duress. And he's made a ton of mistakes, alienated a lot of people. I think the question is, can can he grow and learn? I think a lot of people are asking the same questions of the president, who also comes out of a business environment with no political experience. It's what they asked about Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was governor of California, Jesse Ventura in Minnesota. You know, it's it's tough to move into a very complicated arena with no experience. Could you imagine either one of us going into the news business without ever having tried before? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're, we were, we're bad enough as it is, you know? <laughs> well, let me ask you quickly about the education funding bill because it uh, had, does have a provision for tax credits uh, to the parents of private and religious school children. The BGA did uh, uh, an analysis of uh, what that could cost. So the, the question is, how much, how costly is it? Uh, and the other question is, is it worth it? Well, that's, I'm glad you asked the second part because I want to say the same thing about this as I would have said about abortion and all the other issues. We don't take positions on whether you should sign or veto an abortion. We look at government spending and we look at efficiency and accountability and those things. And so on this education bill, we took no position on the, the private school tuition credit portion. What we did was we looked at the cost. And here's what we determined, which is interesting. Um, the state only pays the state. The state contributes less than three thousand dollars per student to the cost of public education. Most of the rest of it is borne by property taxes, as we know. With this bill, however, there aren't any property taxes. This money comes through donations from people that they get a tax credit for, and then the money's used for the scholarships. Based on the estimated number of young people who will qualify for the scholarships, we estimate that the state will be paying between six and twelve thousand dollars per student. Uh, to fund this education, which is two to five times more than they contribute to the education of a public school student. Now, be that as it may, I mean, you can make of it what you want. The pool of money here is relatively small. It's only $100 million total. Uh, We spend billions on public education, so it's just a fraction of the total spending. But each of the kids who get the scholarship to go to either private or parochial school we'll be taking with them two to five times more of our tax dollars than we're sending to a school to support a public school student. Taxpayers and citizens should make of that what they will. We thought it was important for people just to have that fact. And, and, and an important one to know, but also uh, should the people be factoring in the fact that the way education is funded, the, 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 the formula for it, is finally, after how many decades have we covered this funding? It started before we started we have, working. But, Craig, we haven't fixed it. We've improved it. Uh, we still have an over-reliance on property taxes, and that is unsustainable. But we at least have forced the state to agree to step up and contribute more to the lower-income districts uh, and hold the rest of the districts harmless at least for a year or two. I think that there is a poison pill here that that I I hate to see us confront, but we'll have to. And that is they made a lot of promises in this bill, but they don't have the funding in place for it yet. Uh, the the cost of doing what they did is estimated at three point five billion dollars over the next decade. 
That is money the state doesn't have right now and won't have as long as the pension crisis continues and we continue to spend on everything else at the current levels. We don't have $3.5 billion without raising taxes. Here's how we could get it. It won't happen because it's too challenging. But you know something? If we took all the single school districts in Illinois, if we took the school districts with one school or two schools and we consolidated them and made them districts with five or six schools, we could save $3.5 billion over a decade if you could find a way to, you know, let the people go humanely, you know, with buyouts and things. The dollars might not be exactly right, but I'll give you a statistic and we'll leave this topic. You know, we have 850 school districts in Illinois. One third of them, 275, have only one school. So think about that. There's a district overhead cost and a school cost for one school that might have 200 kids. You might be spending $2 million on bureaucracy to educate 200 kids. Think of how many more teachers or aides or or ancillary programs you could have or how many tax dollars you could rebate if you weren't wasting them on administration. But that's Illinois, the state with the most government in the country. (laughs) And that's one, of course, one of our causes is smart streamlining. And one bill passed by the legislature this spring does something we've been fighting for. It's critically important. It's going to let every county begin to get rid of useless units of government, townships and others. But again, it's going to take a very long time because it's going to take referenda and votes by local citizens. Yes, and in fact, last week we had a fan of that uh, legislation, Jack Franks, the uh, McHenry County uh, board chairman uh, in here. One of my favorite reformers. Yeah, he is. Uh, he, he makes a good case. Uh, but uh, these are just among the things that uh, the BGA keeps watch on. And, uh, you guys are going to be celebrating uh, all of that in the, just a matter of days. You, you've got a, a luncheon coming up. We Talk have our time. annual luncheon on Wednesday. I think some of our friends from WBBM will be joining us. This we do once a year. It's our biggest single fundraising event. It's at the uh, Fairmont Hotel uh, on Wednesday morning. And we will talk about the work we've done at BGA, the 15 bills we helped get passed in Springfield, investigations of failures of the CHA to adequately uh, repair buildings for seniors, uh, a drowning of a special ed kid in a CPS pool, which was which epitomized problems with special ed funding in CPS, uh, a TIF shell game that City Hall and McPeer played uh, to end up helping Navy Pier with its construction, Navy Pier hardly a TIF eligible area, rail tie-ups on the south side which undermine the economy, a gun that ended up mysteriously turned into gun buyback, ends up in the front seat of a murder, a murder scene, uh, presumably planted by a police officer. Um, we are all over the place, and we have a half dozen other great investigations coming to the forefront. We'll talk about that, and our guest will be a colleague of yours at CBS, John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation and chief Washington correspondent for CBS. He and I will have a conversation about fake news, alternative facts, faux news sites, and, of course, the Trump administration, Illinois politics, congressional politics. Uh, we'll cover the waterfront. And I, and if anybody's interested, last minute, please come join us so you can get ticket information at bettergov.org. I'll warn you, the tickets are expensive, but so is watchdog work. It's labor and time intensive. And where does it go from here? You, you've, you've had, and we only have about a minute left, but uh, what can BGA do more than it's doing now or just more of what it's doing now? I think we do five things. We investigate, we litigate, we educate, we advocate, and we communicate. And I rhyme. 
Um, but I don't think we cure government by rhymes. Uh, Jesse Jackson got a lot of mileage out of that. I don't get as much. No, simple fact is we need to keep fighting for a government that's fair, accountable, transparent, honest, and efficient. Illinois and Chicago government hasn't been. The more we disclose to the, and the more people who see the disclosures and express their, their feelings at election time and in protests and in action campaigns online, the more we do that, the more public officials begin to understand what good government means. Public service and self-service, you know, you know you're, you're either serving the public or you're serving yourself. In Illinois, the, the politicians have, have, been, have been self-serving for too long. We're basically saying, you want to make a lot of money, go into business. You go into government, you're serving the public, and that's your first obligation. We say it over and over. We shine a light on government. We hold public officials accountable. But at the end of the day, we will fail if the public doesn't rally behind us in our cause because we have to elect better people and we have to keep the heat on public officials and most of them don't want us to see what they're doing. They don't want the heat on them and so they rig the election system to keep us from voting. That's another thing we have to change. And the simple fact is, this is not a job. This is a cause. It's a crusade. It's a passion. And we'll stay at it. We're 94 years old. We want to be 194. Maybe by then uh, we'll have better government in Illinois. Andy Shaw is the president and CEO of the Better Government Association. Thank you for spending the half hour with us. Always good to see you, Andy. Uh, To our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, cbschicago.com. You can also find our podcasts on play.it. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.